kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's gonna start crying. Ronnie points ever. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please, uh, for this afternoon's feature attraction. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan, and I believe we have yet another hot mic, Corey. Um, sounds like, I don't know, it's going off going off the deep end here. Uh, yeah. Let's do what we can. Is that any better? Yeah, no. Oh, well. Okay. It just blasted me. What do you say? Any better? Yeah, that's better. Better? Better. Okay, wow. That's frustrating. That um, was painful. Yeah, I'm sorry, On a Corey. personal level. It's, yeah, it's a little... <laughs> A little early for that too, which is uh, unfortunate. But uh, I am Ben Flanagan, and yes, this is Aspect Radio, and uh, it's summer, which means sequels, and it also means another Sex in the City film, Corey. And uh, <laughs> they're once again cashing in on the cable phenomenon of the last decade that really sort of helped define uh, television in the 1990s and early part of the last decade, and helped define a generation of women too who uh, really latched on to the program and um, really just embraced it and um, referred to it constantly as just sort of this source for fashion and uh, just witty storytelling. And to help us um, comment on Sex in the City 2 this week is my wife, Tess Foster Flanagan, uh, if we want to throw the, the maiden name in there. How does that feel? Uh, that's nice. Okay. All right. Well, that you know, that's something that they touch upon in this movie, actually, right. uh, which I found pretty interesting. And uh, well, Tess, I'll just go ahead and throw things to you first. Let me let me provide a little perspective, I guess, uh, for the listeners. Since we last saw Carrie Bradshaw on the screen, uh, on the big screen, anyway, she married the mysterious rich guy, Big, but is getting sort of fed up with the mundane lifestyle of marriage just sort of staying in at their lush Manhattan apartment and watching old movies on the couch with her husband. Samantha is aging and finding new ways to sort of chemically avoid menopause. Uh, Miranda is being constantly disrespected by her chauvinist boss at her law firm. And Charlotte, now a mother of two, is cracking under the pressure of, oh no, being a responsible parent, uh, which brings us up to date. Now, Tess, you are a fan of the HBO series that lasted six seasons and continues to air edited, syndicated episodes on cable. You and I also caught the first film two years ago. Tell me, did this sequel recapture the wit, charm, and refreshing innovation of the television show that has influenced a bevy of relationship comedies and dramas for years since? Or is this just another gaudy shell of a forever superior show that will have you reaching instead for the seasons that you own on DVD? Wow, um, the second one, I think. Um, I didn't like it at all, and I, I really, when I saw the trailer for it, I think you can be kind of excited about it just because you're seeing them again, you're seeing the clothes, and you're seeing familiar characters, and you know the music's kind of bad, and you're trying to figure out why they're in Abu Dhabi instead of the city, New York City being you know the, the focus of, of course, the whole series, but I mean, it just, I still wasn't excited about it. I thought some of the dialogue was just awkward, even in the trailer. And then you go and see it, and it's just not at all anything like the show. I mean, it just it seems like they're all 
up there kind of um, too, too self-aware, thinking that they can do whatever they want with the characters that they've essentially created, but it's like completely, uh, it's just a distant memory, the show, it seems like, with this movie, you're just kind of bummed about it. But so you're going to remain pretty nostalgic and watch those old DVDs? I think so. I mean, you know, it, uh, it's kind of strange. I mean, I'm a little bit younger, I think, than the demographic. I mean, when the show came on, I was way too young, I think, to watch it or to... to identify with anything about it um but you know as it came out on dvd and and all of that i I started really getting into it and thinking that these were really interesting characters i don't really see myself you know everybody's like i'm a carrie i'm a samantha i'm a miranda and i've never really identified as one of them um so when you're watching the show it's just it's for fun it's well written Uh, the clothes are beautiful the storylines are interesting all the characters are really developed and, and it just, you know, the second, third, and fourth seasons of that show are just awesome. And then, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm not going to get this movie on DVD. Like, I didn't get the first one and just, yeah, continue to, to enjoy the show for what it was. Well, I'm curious. Um, girls, you know, so many of them that I know, especially throughout college, they totally love the show you included your uh past roommates included Mm -hmm. each of them they they each had the complete series on dvd uh which is how you know i got to watch a lot of them um spending time with you over at your uh apartments watching those dvds we would just hang out and watch sex in the city and for a guy that you know would seem like uh hell in a lot of ways (laughs) having being forced to watch sex in the city and at first it was kind of the case where you were um, encouraging me to watch it and you know of course I would say okay you know this is my new girlfriend I'll watch Sex in the City and I had seen it before uh, on HBO and I didn't really mind it but I didn't really like it and I wasn't really going to give in I just kind of felt like a guy who kind of refused to watch it but the more and more I was forced to watch the more and more I wanted to watch it and it wasn't because I was hypnotized by it or anything or conditioned to do that uh, it was because I thought it was a legitimately well-written an entertaining show and awfully insightful too in terms of relationships what not to do I think is uh, what the show tends to preach a lot especially through the eyes of Carrie Bradshaw and uh, Tess one more question uh, before we really get into our discussion here uh, for you is when you were in college and like you said when girls would say uh, they they would sort of have this common interest in sex in the city and uh, talk to each other about which characters they were and some I'm sure would even have you know, apple martini parties and uh, viewing parties to watch Sex in the City and talk about it, that kind of thing. And I don't really get that impression uh, from the movies. I think that they all go out to see these movies and get excited about it, but I don't really uh, hear them sort of clamoring <coughs> to watch the films again. Do you think that the excitement that women felt for the original show is still there for these films? Um. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say for for other women. I don't, I mean, it certainly is is not as exciting for me. Um, but then, like I said, you know, I never really identified myself as one of them. There were so many vast differences between uh, my life and what I was doing in my life than the show. I mean, the show is kind of like a fantasy. It's not as real world to me as I think a lot of women tend to feel about it. To me, it's just kind of like you know this group of friends that you know do all of these outrageous things and you know but it's within uh the real world world context of new york city but still that life is something that is you know not as appealing to me um so i never really identified that way but as for other women my age or a little bit um, older you know a, a little bit more 
out on their own for a little while. I mean, I think definitely the show, the way it was set up was almost like a week-to-week, day-to-day life for all of these women, you know? So I think that is already more relatable than a two-hour, or I guess in this case, two-and-a-half-hour almost, um, <laughs> a movie experience, I think. Um, I think everybody's kind of aware at this point that, that, that the movies aren't going to quite capture the show. I mean, I think I think everybody's... But I think people are still going to have fun with it and still have a viewing party. You know, I'm sure last night, uh, before they went out to see the movie, several groups of women watched the first movie and, you know, they went to dinner, had mm-hmm. a cocktail, and mm-hmm. went and saw... You know, I mean, I think people still have fun with it, but I don't think anybody's kidding themselves. And our th- <laughs> yeah, and our theater was full of women. You yeah. know, we walked in, and I looked around, and, of course, I was probably... <laughs> the cheese stands alone. Yeah, I was yeah. probably <laughs> one of three or four men in the theater area, and I was fine with that. Yeah, I totally embraced it, but, uh, Corey, let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, Now that your eardrums have healed up, uh, per Mm -hmm. our past conversations, I've kind of surmised that you're not terribly fond of the Sex and the City franchise, but here you sit uh, talking about it, um, whether you wanted to or not. Uh, My question to you is, was sitting through 145 minutes with Carrie Bradshaw and her superficial New York City gal pals, did that reinforce your initial perception of Sex and the City, or was it a pleasant surprise sort of in the realm of romantic comedy? You, you, you're you talking in, about the first you film. In, no, you intend to revisit. Yeah. And now, are you a full-on convert who's ready to sort of delve into the rest of the series you so boorishly ignored and chided for so many years? Wow, I don't even know where to begin with this. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not familiar with the television show apart from one or two isolated episodes mm-hmm. over like a decade mm-hmm. uh i did see the first film uh-huh. as i see most films right uh and thought it was kind of terrible you know completely divorced from all context so i was actually kind of curious about the differences between the television show and and the films in regards to like the portrayal of the characters i mean like i imagine that as with most television shows to films like Every it's it, everything is dialed up to eleven. You know they've they've got to do they've got to play it big. They've got to play it broad. Um, but I mean, is that the case? Like, what 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 are the major differences here? Like, why why are these movies like even kind of bu- bugging like devoted fans of the show? Full disclosure here, though, Corey, uh, you weren't able to see the film last night. No, right? I wasn't. Right, so you're kind of in my position uh, that I was in when we were talking about Robin Hood. Yeah. Or when you were talking about Robin Hood when I when I failed to see that. Uh, let me just say that I was not a fan of the first film. Uh-huh. Um, I think it really took itself too seriously as sort of an event motion picture, kind of like you said, overloading itself with these this fluffy excess and almost completely losing sight of what made uh, it great in the first place. Instead of these clever and sometimes poignant insights in the mind of single women inside and outside of New York City, it really fell in love with its own reputation as this cultural phenomenon hmm. with a legit influence on not only how women think and feel, but how they dress, too. Uh, because, you know, it's a Hollywood film, and it's presenting itself on the biggest possible entertainment platform there is. Uh, writer-director Michael Patrick Keane obviously felt the need to turn the knob up to 11, just like you said, um, and opt for sort of this kitschy extravagance over any substance. And where the show was this invitation into the honest, hilarious, and really brutal realities of four women's search for love, sex, and shoes, the film really depicts them as ugly on the inside, these materialistic hags with no sense of selflessness. And spending more and more money on 
you know, and attention on fashion, which is often distracting and sometimes ugly. I mean, there are some beautiful costumes here, but sometimes, again, I think it's just kind of tacky. The film is this just terrible, like I said before, shell of its former televised self. It really evolved and regressed into precisely what I think so many detractors, like Corey, uh, <laughs> wrote it off as, this trite and hollow fashion show with very little to say. Can I add something, though? Yeah. Because he was asking about the, the essential differences mm-hmm. between the show and the movies. And if you go see the movie, um, which I guess you should. I mean, I, I'm going to, <laughs> okay, good. just because okay. I do okay. that. Well, since you're going to anyway, um, if you're wanting to know what the show is like, there is one scene in the entire movie that, to me, is an appropriate kind of homage to the show. And it's the scene um, between Miranda and Charlotte when they're um, they're just you know at a bar in in Abu Dhabi in the you know hotel of, uh, that they're staying in, and they have this really um, kind of beautiful exchange about motherhood and essentially how that um, unfolds you know has unfolded in their lives and, and what they think about it. And that is a it, you know they're they're always portrayed as kind of selfish. I mean you know they they are good mothers and, and everything like that, but the whole series you know, they have to fight that selfishness, you know, I mean, they really do, and, but to me, this is a really appropriate time for them to kind of unleash some of the thoughts that they've had, and, and what they want for themselves in the future, and things mm-hmm. like that, and it really is, it's a great scene, and if the whole movie had had anything close to that, then it would have been worthwhile, but they, they had that one scene, and then I think later, uh, there's a nice little, like, hat tip to, to Big, to the character of Big, when he pulls up in his black car, underneath her old apartment and that you know is a, is a really um, famous image from the show that, that's really cool but um, if you're wanting to know the, the essential difference that one really good scene mm-hmm. is the show and then the rest of the movie is just really a misfire because yeah. it's just not not good. I totally agree with that. I think Tess and I walked out and she mentioned that and that's exactly what I was thinking during that scene, thinking this, they're actually finally getting it. They're they're bottling what they had previously on the television series. And they seemed, yeah, they were so close, you know, I mean, and there were some things that, that, I mean, they just anticipated they could read each other's mind. I mean, it was just like the real friendship that you saw on the show and then the rest of the time you you when they're in the same room in that movie you don't even buy them Mm -hmm. as friends it's just like they have all this history but you don't actually buy it because they're not acting it you know see and i bet i bet this experience of uh you know fans of the show guys and girls because guys and girls do love the show i know they do uh when they go see these movies i think they do there is that initial excitement of seeing their favorite show on the big screen but when they watch it again they're not really they're not really getting what they what they loved uh they're just kind of getting this um you know overcooked experience but when they see these little scenes like we're talking about with miranda and charlotte at the bar in their in their room i guess they have a bar inside of their gigantic suite um and i when when you see big pull up in the car uh towards the end of the movie uh i think that they they have to get these like little warm feelings like wow okay this is sex in the city this is what i remember they still get it but why couldn't they do that for the entire two and a half hours you feel fuzzy about it but then you get angry because you're like this is the only Mm -hmm. time i'm gonna see this Mm -hmm. i know for certain that this is the only moment in an hour and 45 minutes two hours two hours yeah whatever um Two hours. But I'm gonna, you know, feel like this is what I've I've seen before, you know. And I, I wouldn't say that the show was perfect. I felt like um, the further they went on, the less focus that they had, and the more um, kind of um, 
self-aware yeah and i think that the storylines were just there because um you know especially in the sixth season i think it was all just leading towards what choice would carrie make mm-hmm. who would she end up with and that kind of thing and um but i mean it wasn't without fault and sometimes the dialogue was bad but mm-hmm. a lot of the time it was excellent and that's what really was missing from this movie it's just like who wrote it i mean <laughs> really who mm-hmm. wrote this movie because it's not the same person that wrote the show so so Surely. okay if i can jump in here and uh-huh. ask another question I mean, both of these movies have been written and directed by the show's creator. I mean, that's the one guy you'd expect to really get the show. So, Well, did Michael Patrick King create it or did Darren Star? Oh, okay. Um, maybe Darren Star had something to do with it, but Michael Patrick King is at least He's like the brain. The yeah, he, of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We would have I'm hitting the, the, the Wikipedia. <laughs> well, he's kind of like the heart of the show, but go ahead, Corey. Okay, yeah, Darren Star created it, but okay. he... Okay, Michael Patrick King was kind of like the showrunner for a while right. i guess he wrote and directed a lot of the episodes right so i mean this is the guy that you'd expect to get these characters so what what has he done with the with these movies like why why does the guy you'd expect to get get it just seem to not really get it well i think i mean i was reading something recently maybe it was in entertainment weekly but um just about how um he writes for television you know um and and his specialty is writing i guess 45 to 50 minute um, intervals in the middle of their their time in the middle of their lives and to fast forward I don't know how many years was it after the series ended that the first movie it's been two years since the first movie mm-hmm. but before that I think it was like three four, yeah not many know. yeah um and I think maybe it, it you know he just thought okay this is big scale I mean people are putting a lot of money in this movie so we just need to um, make a departure from the show, mm-hmm. which was not a good idea, and include all of these people, like Ben and I were talking about, all these ridiculous cameos in the first one, and also in the second one, you know, just because they can, just because mm-hmm. it's the Sex and the City movie, and I think he probably just kind of went Hollywood on it, I mean, I really can't figure out, because within the context of the show, you know, he had creative control, and it, you know, it was an ongoing thing, and people couldn't really touch it, but when you make it into this huge... Uh, large-scale uh, Hollywood movie. I guess you just have more people, you know, saying, "Oh, let's do this and let's just mm-hmm. throw this out there and let's have this Jennifer Hudson song and do all," you know, and yeah. it just sort of gets out of control. Yeah, and there, you know, that it's very easy for them to say, "Oh, well, you know, let's now that now that we're making a film, we can kind of, like she said, do whatever we want. We've got a larger budget. Uh, we can involve more celebrities that can sort of add." to the credibility i guess of this film and it's like you don't really need that sex in the city is a uh, legitimate very powerful franchise onto its own the characters uh have already been established as these iconic figures um both as entertainers and as uh, I, I guess like we've been touching upon uh, before fashion icons you know they're fine on their own uh and they're highly capable of uh telling a compelling story which they've done for six television seasons um but I mean, yeah, I think that, you know, it's evidently clear, and we know this, we've, you know, let's try and think of which television adaptation into movies are are really good. What are the most memorable experiences that we've had? I mean, can you think of any off the top of your head uh, where the the series is, you know, just recent, has just recently ended Mm -hmm. or is even still active, and you've, uh, they've managed to make a good movie out of it i'm gonna say the star x-files trek? yeah uh, the first one yeah okay and maybe i mean i would argue the star s- trek right i mean or did well, that start out as a movie 
Star Trek, uh, the... Well, all the movies were made long after the series was over. Okay, right. So it's from television? Yeah. Movie. Yeah, it was okay. television to movie. I mean, you could argue the original motion picture. Uh, you know, the Star Trek, the motion Wrath picture. Wrath of Khan. Yeah, Wrath of Khan. Yeah, those are those are good examples. Uh, and I would even argue maybe The Simpsons. Uh, I thought that yeah. that was a good movie. It's a good movie. But, um, you know, it's different. Movies and television are different. And you only have two and a half hours to tell this story, this huge story that you want to. And you've only got so much time to let every single character that you have established as a, uh, you know, a main character sort of get their lines in or get their arcs in, you know, and you've got your four central ones, Carrie, Samantha, Mir uh, Miranda, and Charlotte, and, you know, I think for the most part, they still have a, have a grasp on who these people are, but you have these secondary characters like the husbands and the boyfriends and some of the women, you know, like Steve and um, uh, Harry and uh, who, who's the, uh, the guy who gets married at the beginning? Uh, her friend Anthony, Anthony, and um, Willie Garcon. Yeah, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, me Stanford. too. Stanford. Yeah, <laughs> I think that these are just very, um, I don't know, amplified, kind of uh, hollow versions of what they were. Right. And it's like we it have is, to find, a, we have yeah. to find an opportunity for them to squeeze in a line in between what all the main characters are saying, and then they all just completely disappear right. for the movie. Definitely. And, and uh, like there's this wedding sequence at the beginning where they call it, they call it the gay wedding, and it's uh, between Anthony and uh, Stanford, like you said, and it's just this very, uh, again, this gaudy wedding, you know, with a, the, this all-male choir, and then Liza Minnelli shows up, and she marries the two and performs this atrocious oh, but she, musical okay, number. Okay, can I just point out that that was painful to watch, but mm -hmm. she's great. Now, I don't know how old she is, but, I She's mean, game, yeah. Come on now, that was, she, she was pretty, uh, she was pretty good for, um, yeah, that, that was kind of Good for her. I'm glad no, she can still do that, but that was bad. Out, yeah. But do you remember, Tess, I mean, uh, when they're all kind of standing around at the wedding, you have basically like eight characters standing there. Saying and, nothing. Well, <laughs> they, would eat, they would go from character to character in the middle of this conversation, and each of them would have a exactly. line progressing the conversation. But so you saying go to, nothing. Yeah, you go to Steve, right. you go to Carrie, you go to Miranda, you go to Big, and they'd all have some little tiny funny thing to say, and it's like, okay, well, Steve got his line by Steve, and then we never <laughs> see him again. Ever. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Tess, what I'm what I'm curious about is a lot of people have, you know, called this just a very um, ugly sort of overly superficial uh, story where nothing really bad happens to these characters. The things that they're complaining about are so stupid just in terms of like uh, Charlotte when she um, is dealing with her children crying and she, she, you know, has to look to her nanny to actually take care of her children. Charlotte is in the kitchen and one of the girls, uh, you know, touches her vintage dress with red paint and she, it just sends her over the top. I she starts it's, crying. It's vintage Valentino. Right, vintage Valentino. And she freaks out on her kid. She screams right. at her kid. <laughs> and she, just, she wants to have a conversation with Carrie. And then you have Carrie where Big, and I read somebody else pointed this out in a review on Ain't It Cool News. Capone did, actually. And this really got me, too. You know, he said, I blew up in the, th I th he said, I thought about blowing up in the theater. And I was like, well, it can't be that bad. And then I almost blew up in the theater when I saw it. It's when uh, it's Big and Carrie's anniversary. And Big gives her a gift that he thinks that she will like because of an experience they had the night of the wedding they attended, but she doesn't like it, and she has this very unpleasant, adverse reaction to it. And then her response is, maybe you could have gotten me a piece of jewelry or something. 
you know? Right. And it's like, are you seriously? Okay, but do you really think that, um, I guess, a 45-year-old man bought a flat screen for his bedroom for his wife? No, like, no, I understand, you know I, I understand I her do, frustration, I yeah, but I also think that he meant well, you know, right. I he think did. that, you know, as unlikable as a character as he is, and as he always has been through the series and everything, it's just kind of who he is, and it's the guy that she sort of fell for, and it's her, it's her burden to shoulder now, you know, because that's the guy that she wanted. Right, and then, you know, they're both, I mean, you can really argue, really not very likable you know i mean i think it just in terms of her asking for jewelry and him getting the flight you know what i mean mm -hmm. like they're just both um notorious for being very self-absorbed and mm -hmm. very um flighty and um you know flaky and mm -hmm. all those good things but um but yeah she definitely and i think they actually play the song about uh i see your true colors now mm -hmm. is that really is that played in the that, i think I that's towards like the is. end of the film yeah and uh and I think it's funny because you don't at all in this movie. You don't actually see any layers or any um, depth, mm -hmm. I think. And that's just a good example of her being like, you've got me jewelry. And he's like, but I got you this, you know, yeah. thing. Um, you know, and so I, I really think they're kind of both shallow and at fault in that situation. And, it, you know, I, I'm sure and it made a lot of people angry, and especially all the males out there. It's like, I try to get you something nice. And yeah. You just say, I would have appreciated that bracelet. Yeah, I know women yeah. aren't really looking forward to getting DVD players or, like, you know, those, those kinds of appliances that, you know, men will most certainly appreciate. But you're right. He did have a, you know, kind of a sentimental attachment yeah. to why he got it. And, but, you, know. you know, and, Corey, I, you know, I wonder if this is a complaint of yours uh, about this. I, I've heard a lot of people um, say it, you know, watching a bunch of, uh, you know, super rich New York City socialites uh, go on vacation at this unbelievably expensive and just this lavish uh, Abu Dhabi resort, that's not really entertainment, you know, because, I mean, you have all of these trivial um, obstacles that they have to overcome, yet it seems like to them to be the end of the world, but it's like, why should we even care about these characters? They have these uh, highly privileged lives, so, uh, you know, tell me why I should care about Carrie Bradshaw's dilemma. Well, I, I actually listened to an interview with uh, Michael Patrick King on NPR, uh, I don't know, I guess a week ago, in which he sort of defended the premise of this film by saying that it was meant to be escapism. Uh, he looked back to the sort of movies, allegedly, playing devil's advocate, because mm -hmm. obviously I haven't mm -hmm. seen it, but he, said, he says he looked back to the sort of movies they were making during the Great Depression mm -hmm. and saw these road pictures and mm -hmm. these lavish... Uh, uh, stories and, and people taking vacations, I think this was his, his phrase, people taking vacations on the screen because the people who were going to see the movie couldn't afford to. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to do something like that with this. So on that level, uh, does this work? I mean, I, I, I don't well, know. Well, you know, and it reminds me of something Woody Allen used to say about uh -huh. the movies that he used to love because he, uh, you know, The Purple Rose of Cairo was a movie he made and the film within a film that right. Jeff Daniel stars in is what Woody Allen calls a champagne picture right. where uh, you have all of these rich people living in these nice New York penthouses and they do go on these adventures across the world and that's what you have here. That's essentially what you have. But what I'm wondering is uh, are, are these good characters that deserve 
the sort of riches and good things that are happening to them because I mean what I want what I want from them and what I want from any story is for me to care about these characters and care about what what they're doing and uh, what they're up to and look and what I said about the the uh, the first film the things I didn't like I mean you can consider some minor improvements I think the same can be really said about the second film pretty much everything uh, Tess said about it is exactly right the characters haven't grown at all instead uh, even though three of them are several years into seemingly happy, uh, happy marriages, they really kind of long for their past uh, when children and lifelong commitment weren't really realities and weren't really these burdens that they had to shoulder. And the frivolous lifestyles that drove them to these existential crises where they found that they, if they ended up alone, what good were their lives at all? You know, and I think the film really does have a few funny moments that manage to get a few laughs out of me out loud. And unlike the first film, it even brings back some fond memories of the show and kind of reinstates uh, some faith in the players behind and in front of the camera. But in the end, I just don't really think they tell anything that remotely resembles a compelling story unless that is you truly care about a 45 year old teenage brat who's disappointed <laughs> with her flat screen television. Yeah, and, and, and let, let, but let's talk about, really quick, I mean, because we've gone longer than I thought we would on this movie, and Corey, poor Corey hasn't even seen it, and I, I, I hate to spoil this for you, Corey. I, I, I'll live yeah. somehow. I think the positives, I really uh, still enjoyed Cynthia Nixon as Miranda. I think she, if anybody, still uh, understood her character, and they still executed her well, and she was the most likable easily because she did good things for the other characters. She tried to make their Abu Dhabi experience fun and uh, she, she was just kind of fun to spend time with and again I like Chris Chris Noth as big I think that he was good he you know he had great comic timing and uh, he I think he actually provided a little more depth to this character that we didn't typically like throughout the uh, television show right and I you know just want to point out that I was a big Aiden fan mm -hmm. of the show mm -hmm. I you know really thought that he was a great character and a good person and I really didn't feel like Carrie deserved him um, while they were together. And, uh, of course, if you've seen the trailer for the movie, you know that he makes an appearance. And, um, I'm just kind of mad at John Corbett. Corbet? I don't know how he pronounces Corbett. it. Corbett. Um, because he just did not play it well, mm -hmm. and I was really disappointed. When he was, giving, he was given nothing to do. Nothing. You're, I know. You're, you're bringing he, back this character that was so important to the show. and uh, it's so it, important to her, and just in, in terms of, of her understanding that she can't just, you know, um, hurt people. And, and you know, I'm still not sure she's figured that out. But, um, but yeah, he was definitely a, a heart a heart strength, yeah, I think, for a lot of fans of the show. I mean, yeah, and you see him briefly... And, he, yeah, he's given nothing to do, but he also, I think, just doesn't, it, you know, he became very self-aware, too. Um, yeah, so I was and very sad about Corey, that. and, like, he this character, I don't know what you know about him, like, I'll give you the, you know, to kind of give you some context, just kind of, like, of what kind of weight he brought to the show. If you remember, say, like, the Jim and Pam relationship on The Office, uh -huh. and, you know, the will-they-won't-they they sort of aspect to that and the excitement that people felt uh, initially until it just kind of jumped the shark and turned into this too happy of a of a relationship and a marriage that made for boring television 
uh, th this I think this is kind of you know it kind of had that similar feel you know you wanted you wanted Aiden and uh, Carrie to work and if it didn't you know you were still stressed about it but either way he's given nothing to do you're absolutely right anyway I'm sorry you were just talking about the good and I was, thought I'd throw in the yeah. bad just that was a side no it's fine yeah. yeah oh and the bad the Liza Minnelli stuff terrible and then there's this cameo ex inexplicable cameo yeah, at yeah. the beginning mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about specifically but it's uh, the <laughs> I have two guesses as to who you're talking who? about. Well, I don't. I don't know if I want to spoil like the big name cameos, okay. but I've heard the two shocking people. Well, the, I don't least. know if this. It was shocking for me, uh, but let's just say it's the guy who plays Miranda's boss. Oh. Where I was just like, <laughs> I, wasn't thinking about I was like, that. what? What is he doing in this Wait, movie? I actually haven't heard about this. Yeah, it, you know, it may. I loved it. I mean, yeah. just because it, it, it is inexplicable, but I love him. Yeah. I really, really do. I kind of wish that he was in more of it, to be I honest know. with you. He, he only had has a lot this... more funny stuff to say. Yeah. But he, that, I didn't even notice it until you pointed it out because I was just, I don't know, mad and glaring at something else. But, you know, you were just like, do you know who that is? And I thought, oh, yeah, I yeah. actually do. So that was, that was kind of And, yeah, and just to kind of close, I mean, the... A lot of the a lot of these films are about like the looks of uh, these women. They're you know they're aging, they're approaching their fifties, yet they still want to uh, and they but they still look beautiful. You know they they manage to do that because of the costumes, uh, and you know the 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 photography. I mean they they still look good, but I think throughout this movie, I just there were times when I thought they don't look very good, and I think they're trying too hard. And Corey. Uh, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, it reminded me so much of that scene in Goodfellas when Lorraine Bracco is talking about all of the other wives. Right. And you know? Right. Yeah, and she's like, you know, they all they all wore bad clothes and had bad makeup and bad hair and their skin was bad, you know? Very and nice. yeah, and they were all Very so nice. you know and I was just like, Yeah, that's exactly what she's describing the ladies in sex in the city. Well, now. and and you know, since I'm providing the female perspective, the mm -hmm. um, the costumes on the show were better. They just were. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and they didn't call was, as much attention to themselves. I told you, I was like, on the way, I was like, I'm kind of excited just because I think it's kind of what I've heard it referred to as dress porn for women. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all of these incredible things that haven't even hit the runway yet, and here they are uh, in the middle of the desert. Uh, these women are wearing, and, and but it was, and they were beautiful, but it was not as awesome as what they wear on the show every week and oh. just sort of anyway so that was disappointing we'll see what happens uh, in part three i'm sure there we're uh, in for a trilogy because i mean this movie's making bank um and the dvds i'm sure continue to do well as they go on sale but uh let's take a quick break and uh we're gonna play a little she and him the uh the band uh, made up by zoe deschanel and m ward and tess recently got the new album volume two and it's good stuff i've got to say i listened to the entire thing the other day and we're going to play one of tess's favorite songs it's called riding in my car the fourth track off of the album so this is aspect radio stick around we'll be right back Back here on Aspect Radio, uh, joined as always by Corey Kraft. What's up? And uh, what's up? <laughs> what's up? <laughs> uh, and joining us today, uh, a very special guest, my wife Tess, who uh, brought her always valuable insight to our uh, Sex and the City discussion. So thank oh. you for being here, Tess. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Corey, now that we're done talking about uh, the film itself and you know its contents. 
let's talk about something that I think you will have uh, an opinion on. Sure. Um, I saw this article, and I, you know, I actually heard people talk about this when the first film came out. Um, there's an article at the Guardian, this you know, this British publication and this website, uh, Guardian.co.uk, and the headline is "Sex in the City 2: Rise of the Critic Proof Movie." And its little subhead says, on course to be the most derided film ever, the sequel epitomizes movies whose reviews have had no bearing on the box office. And it continues to just sort of uh, talk about how it's just kind of been critically lampooned, and uh, yet it had this unbelievable uh, take at the box office this past Thursday night with $14.2 million, which is good. And it's going to make, as Nikki Fink projects on Deadline.com, around $75 million for the holiday weekend, mm-hmm. uh, which is bigger than the last film. Uh, and, you know, ticket prices have gone up. But, uh, you know, and it also refers to films like Transformers, which are, were both incredibly successful. It talks about uh, The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, both of those uh, doing very well overseas. God, they grossed uh, unbelievable amounts. We're talking close to billions uh, together. And... Um, they also talk about Lara Croft Tomb Raider, which you know was uh, panned um, and made two hundred and seventy-five million dollars globally. Now, Corey, I'm curious, um, what do you think of this theory, just in terms of these critic-proof movies? I mean, how does that make you a critic feel in terms of your influence on uh, you know how people spend their money at the box office? I mean, I've sort of resigned myself to it by this mm. point. I, I, I mean, last summer is. Transformers 2 and the mega business that it did um, sort of dulled the pain, or dulled all future pain, just because that was such that's such a case of such a terrible movie connecting with the with the mainstream in a big way. But this is not new, you know. This is not something that has ever it, it will never go away. Critics have never really had the influence they would like to. Um, and uh, if it's a property that people want to see, they're going to go see it, regardless of what uh, some guy said in a blog mm-hmm. one time. Um, that's just how it is. Well, as a fan, does it frustrate you to see these terrible movies making as much money as it does? I mean, as a fan, yes. Yeah, I yeah. mean, but as a critic, I mean, I, that's just sort of the, the, the thing that happens. But uh-huh. as a fan, yeah, that that's frustrating, just because I mean, especially with with Transformers too. Yeah, and I hate to harp on that, but that movie is so bad so bad in so many ways uh that i mean i I just felt like that movie being so it it, just as a symbol of like hollywood excess and bloat and the worst qualities of big budget filmmaking being so soundly accepted by everybody who just like ate it up and saw it a couple times just because well the story was boring but megan fox is in it and robots punch each other you know for 45 seconds which was cool uh, well, does it um, indicate to you that these people really like these movies? No, no. I mean, going to the going to the movies. I mean, as long as you're not seeing a 3D movie, um, it, it's still the the cheapest form of entertainment in a lot of places. Um, I would say in Tuscaloosa, it's one of the cheaper things you can do on a Friday or Saturday night. And uh, if there's, you know, nothing playing, or if you want to do something uh, that uh, that. Uh, doesn't really require you to think or uh, you know think too much about what you're doing. Uh, Transformers Two or its kind. That's that's it. Yeah, um, it frustrates me too because uh, 
you know, there are movies that I don't like that make a ton of money, like the first couple of Shrek movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was one of the, I was really not in Shrek's camp from the beginning, and you know, I, I was always, you know, and I hate to pin the two against each other, but I always thought, you know, Pixar is here and it's doing this much better than Shrek is doing, uh, especially in the case of 2001, where you had one against the other. Uh, Shrek 2, or yeah, Shrek versus Monsters, Inc., which I thought was a clearly superior movie, yet Shrek made much more money and won the Oscar. And I remember thinking, why are people drinking this Kool-Aid? Why are they paying so much money to see it when it's clearly terrible? This is so funny because you are so much more uh, the target audience, I think, for Shrek Mm -hmm. than children. And then children are more, I think, the the Pixar audience. Even though, I mean, they're great movies and adults can enjoy them, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, I'm an overgrown <laughs> child. You no, know, I think that <laughs> <laughs> the Pixar movies are, are much better. But I think, you know, um, that that's just funny that, that you say that. Well, but, what, one yeah. thing I, I think this article doesn't mention is that children's movies are generally the most critic-proof because mm-hmm. children are not terribly picky mm-hmm. about their entertainment so they don't mind gonna, talking chihuahuas yeah they're gonna see beverly hills chihuahua yeah. and they're gonna see uh, madagascar too and mm-hmm. they're gonna see all these uh all these kids movies because they i mean they're kids you know and then so that's that's pretty reliable uh critic proof yeah business. what do they know exactly they don't know anything yeah Though I mean, I feel to, that way. To be, I mean, to <laughs> you be work fair. with them. I work with children, so yeah. I really I'm not. In, they're not interested. Their parents aren't interested. In what right. Critics have to say because you know they're interested in what their child you, is going to laugh at and enjoy for you know two hours in the afternoon. Yeah, you just go. You go sit in you know an air conditioned dark room for an hour and a half and, and listen to your child giggle maniacally right. at everything that comes on the screen. I God, mean, I, as a parent, I would enjoy that as well. So. But to be fair, like the better kids' movies usually seem to do better, mm-hmm. like the Pixar right. movies. I mean the. They're yeah, they're they're reliably high grocers mm-hmm. because I mean everybody likes Pixar. Yeah, it, you know, of course. I mean, when, if if and when we have kids, I think we might. I don't know, maybe a little different. I mean, I know I will. I'm not going to feel too great about taking my kid to go see what I know to be a bad movie. I'd rather you know drive to Birmingham. Uh, to see if the Alabama theater is playing like uh, an old, really good kids movie yeah. up on the big screen. Or I remember back when I was a kid, the Fox 12 here would have uh, some in the summertime. They would have free movies that kids could go see in the morning, and you could go. See, they would play like old Disney movies mm-hmm. or you know live action Disney movies for free, and that that was great. You know, I take just, your kids to that. I just want to point out that if your parents are listening, which I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that they are, they're laughing right now because mm-hmm. of all of the things that uh, you and Graham that we and forced Suzanne them to see. To see. <laughs> and I was actually just talking to Corey during the break mm-hmm. about you going to see uh, live wrestling events. Yeah, I do you believe it was your father that yeah. took you to see those? I so do feel bad you about should, that. Um, be waiting to I mean, hear about that uh, after the show. To, of, to be fair, I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, what you'll take experience. your child to um, when you're a parent, will I think it will truly shock you. Yeah, I'm so. sure they're probably like, do you know what I had to sit through? <laughs> for you? For you, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I had to sit, God, I'm trying to think of so uh, let's let's, uh, let's see what that happens. We had to sit and watch Teen Wolf 200 <laughs> times in a row on a Saturday afternoon. For me, it was Drop Dead Fred yeah. and um, PJ Sparkles and, and all of this. I mean, you know, everybody. I'll um, take Teen Wolf over over Beverly Hills Chihuahua, though. Most yeah. people might not. I thought you were going to say Drop Dead Fred. I was going to throw something. I would take Teen Wolf over <laughs> so. that, too. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's. 
finished, then we're not going to talk. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> okay. but I guess you know, no matter what, no matter what critics say, and I don't think people should listen to what critics say. I don't think that they should let it influence the decision whether they're going to see a movie because right. I think they should be their own critics. They should make their own stinking decisions, you know, and not some snobby uh, guy who may not like it just because. Um, I, you know, I never tell anybody not to go see a movie because, I mean, they might love it. Only in the most extreme circumstances do I, uh, Transformers 2 being a notable. Yeah, and that was, that was bad, yet it managed to be better than the first movie, which I was horrible. strongly disagree. The first movie's so bad. But I think, okay. you know, you should both kind of acknowledge that. I like to consider myself in the middle of like the maybe the typical audience mm -hmm. and the two of you um you know I, I exist somewhere in between those two um parameters and i think um that for critics you know it's the, your life's work to take movies seriously and to appreciate or not appreciate every single thing about them and for most of what we're talking about the box office is people who just want to go and do something, you know, and just mm -hmm. enjoy it for a right. little while. And that's not to say that critics can enjoy it. I mean, they can probably enjoy it more so than the average person. When it's a really good movie, a critic is going to enjoy it so much more because you know what it takes to make a movie and to make it work. And, you know, so I think it's it's hard for you to, I think, to really see a very, very bad movie because you know how easy it is to make a bad movie and how, you know, it would, it, with all the money that goes into Transformers and, uh, I don't know, Shrek probably takes a lot of money to make, yeah. too. I mean, what you could do with that money what kills me, make a really good movie. What kills me, though, is repeat business. You know, right. that that's what bothers me. Is I understand if somebody's going to see it for the first time, because I am, too. I want to see what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Even with something like Avatar, I think everybody's just going to kind of go see uh, what it's all about, what the hype is all about. But when the movie continues to make so much money because people are seeing these films two, three, and four more times, I don't understand it. Like, what are they getting that I'm not getting? To beat a dead horse, uh -huh. Transformers 2, uh, <laughs> with its with its... 45 seconds of action, yeah. and it's uh, two and a half hours of... Farting robots? Right. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, really? yeah. Ooh. Wow. Shia LaBeouf stumbling around with Megan Fox. What is the difference between that and the first movie, Corey? I hate to go off on a little <laughs> tangent here, but you're like, the first one's clearly better, yet it's Shia LaBeouf stumbling around with Megan uh, Robot Fox... And there's not much action that you can decipher among the poorly designed Transformers. Come on, tell me. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to make you uncomfortable I, I don't, here. I don't, I don't have an answer for that other than... The second one just plain sucks. Right. The second one went beyond, <laughs> went far beyond the, the level of suck that I expected from a Transformers movie. So the first movie might have sort of pushed you towards the edge, but right. the second one was just like, okay. I mean, I think the climax of the first movie is a lot better, too. Uh-huh. With the, the right. L.A. thing. I'll buy that. Yeah. Look, they're, they're both terrible. I think. I can't stand them. And I, but I'm just a big fan. Well, I was fan. at least interested. There was more action in the first one. I mean, I, I thought it, you know, you could... I, I mean, I just thought it was interesting, you know, how the, the technology aspect of it and, you know, how they were able to make these things from cars into robots and from robots back into cars. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was... That was gen I was impressed with that. Well, look, I don't care. No matter what, when the third one comes out, no matter what the critics say, I'm going to be there. <laughs> two or three times and it's going to make 500 million dollars that's the lesson we can take away from this exactly 
Let's uh, let's take another quick break, and we'll come back with some DVD picks. Uh, Tess, think of what you can tell the folks to watch on DVD this week, because I didn't properly prepare you for this segment. Uh, Thanks. But that's what we're going to do. Yeah. You have you have two minutes. Okay. Um, but we'll be right back. More she and him. This is a good one. Stick around. This is Aspect Radio. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. 90.7. Vince DiCola, baby. Transformers the movie soundtrack. That's appropriate. That's the Autobot Decepticon battle. Thank you for looking at me when you say that because I have no idea, obviously. Well, we know what we're doing later, (laughs) and uh, that'll bring us into our DVD discussion. Uh, I'll go ahead and start my picks. Uh, We'll be watching Transformers the movie. (laughs) Um, from 1986, the far superior incarnation uh, that was sullied by the Michael Bay uh, films, sadly. But yet, I will still go see the next ones. Um, but yeah, uh, Corey, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some real ones later. I will okay. be watching that by myself, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but Corey, go ahead. Well, uh, this past Tuesday saw the release of uh, what is quickly becoming one of my favorite comedies of last year. The Road! No, yeah, uh, well, I'm sorry. Not, not the rim. I'm sorry. A little, little dark. <laughs> um, I, I was talking about uh, Mystery Team, which is the feature debut from Derek Comedy, the sketch troupe that you can find at Derek.com, um, which features Donald Glover of NBC's Community uh, as one of its main members. Who is he on Community? He is Troy. No, no, I don't watch it. Okay, so that's a shame. Well, Community I mean, it's is not because I, it's not I dislike it. Right. I like Joel McHale and I like Chevy Chase, but you know, Community is great. Uh, Mystery Team is also great. Um, uh, okay, sort of a sort of an absurdist comedy um, that follows uh, three eighteen-year-olds who, as young children, were Encyclopedia Brown-style detectives in their small town. Uh, who have refused to grow out of this. And so now, on the verge of graduating high school, they are still solving childish mysteries. And in an attempt to uh, solve a grown-up mystery, they turn their detective skills to a double homicide. Uh, So it goes goes in some pretty dark and pretty gross places, but it's really, really funny. Um, And I really can't recommend that enough, especially if you're... And if you haven't seen Derek Comedy, check them out. Um... Next week sees the release of one of, uh, I think, the more unfairly maligned movies of 2010, The Wolfman. Um, <laughs> we actually had a conversation about this on this show, so I won't dwell on it too much, other than to, than to say that I think it's really fun, it looks nice, and uh, it's, it's, it's about a wolfman, was, so what else do you want? I was thinking about it earlier, uh, or yesterday. I was on my way home from work because uh, I, you know, I listened to a show and they mentioned that the DVD was coming out, and uh, you know, the gore in it is really what impressed me. Yeah, it's for a very violent. Yeah, for a Hollywood studio film, it's very violent, and I like it. And also next week, speaking of critic-proof movies, you can see Alice in Wonderland, which has now yeah. crossed the one billion dollar mark worldwide. Wow. Making it the sixth movie to do so in history. Mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland now joined that club, so way to go, world. Yeah, and uh, you were not a fan. No. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so does that do it for you? That does it for me. Nothing really comes out next week. Test any, Wonderland. any picks? Do you really want me to say it on air? Sure. Okay. Um, okay, in my defense, I'm uh, currently working on um, the final paper for mm -hmm. uh, this semester. It is 70 pages, so <laughs> I get to do whatever I want mm -hmm. to take the edge off, mm -hmm. which <laughs> does include me going to Target and finding, to my surprise, uh, the first two seasons of Dawson's Creek for 20 bucks mm -hmm. for both of them. Been watching that. Oh, yeah? And you have three and four, too. I do. Don't forget. I know. Thank you. Your loving way. husband. I know. Yeah, knows about your uh, plight. So, so, yeah. To take the edge off, yeah. Oh, and it's... Corey... Did you ever get into it, Dawson's Creek? Dawson's Creek. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. <laughs> no, no. Why are you? Why would you even ask? I guess because that's, you didn't either. So it, it was competing with Pokemon for Corey's <laughs> attention. Am I wrong? It still, it still is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or so Dragon okay. Ball Z. But what isn't these days? But competing you know, with Pokemon. I've been, I've been watching Because Corey's it's, fifteen. Okay. I've been watching it, and it's been, uh, it's been a nice walk down memory lane. Good. It's just cute. It's just. Nice. Don't hate on Pokemon, dude. Hey, man. I'm not. I know what you like. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking we hit up the red box test. Okay. And we go for a super happy trilogy. Here's what I've got in mind. Uh, the Messenger, The Lovely Bones, and is The Road out on DVD now? Yep. Okay, The Road. That's what we're watching. We're watching all three in succession tonight. What do you say? <laughs> Make sure you end with the road. End with the road, so, so that like there's no possibility for happiness. And a little, a little um, background information. I made it through um, the first seven pages of that book before I just had to put it down and um, just said, pretty, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Pretty right bleak. Now. And I think it was a couple of summers ago. Not exactly um, light summer reading. Great um, book. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's certainly just, a bleak one. You've got to psych yourself up, I think, to make it through it. But I will at some point. Well, we'll do that. And I still have Toy Story on Blu-ray, and I haven't watched oh, it that. after a week. Now yeah, that I will watch. Let's do it. Let's, yeah, let's, let's sure. hit it up for sure. And, you know, I'll cheat a little bit here, Corey, and uh, mention to the people uh, that we're actually going to start a new segment next week or whenever we're, we're allowed back into the studio um, where we count down the films from the AFI top 100 american movies uh list that they released i believe the original was in like 1996 or 7 yeah something like that yeah something like that and uh we're gonna we're gonna count down that list of the films we haven't seen and uh cory i think you did you, you definitely did better than i did you haven't seen i think like 24 something like that yeah, yeah 24 or maybe 26 or something and i haven't seen like 30 six mm -hmm. i think something or 34 i don't know but uh either way overlapping we haven't seen 15 of the movies and uh, we're actually going to start next week with john houston's uh, adventure film with humphrey bogart the treasure of the sierra madre and i think uh you know the reason that this is totally appropriate is because i mean these are classic films uh, it's a consensus that they're classic films and it's something that we have to look forward to we haven't seen every movie that there is and uh, i mean any I, I would love to meet the person that's not a critic a paid critic that uh has seen all 100 of those movies yeah you know a film lover because i mean there's always something you haven't seen uh, so that should be fun now opening nationwide and in tuscaloosa at the cobb hollywood 16 this weekend sex in the city 2 uh prince of persia the sands of time another colon title uh starring jake gyllenhaal ben kingsley and alfred molina what a what a <laughs> cast for a blockbuster 
a blockbuster movie, and then you have the unknown female interest. Are you going to see that movie, Corey? Uh, maybe eventually. Were you a video game player? No, no, I, I never, I've never played any of these games. Okay, and also keep an eye out for the Bama Art House Summer Movie Series, which opens with the Noah Baumbach comedy Greenberg, which I know we're all looking forward to seeing, uh, playing June 8th at 8 p.m. at the Bama Theater. I'm very excited for this. Yeah, me too. So Congratulations to the Bama Art House yeah. series for this for this series, by the way. This yeah. is just great. Look, look, looking good. Yeah. Now, if you have any feedback, you can email us at uh, 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Aspect Radio or twitter.com slash Aspect Radio. We might even read a comment or two on the air, so keep them coming. Yeah, and we really want to read these comments on the air, so... Uh come anyway you know, any, at transformers all. 2 apologists yeah, yeah bring so, it yeah sure yeah anybody's welcome and i want to thank my wife tess for joining us this week and uh, we hope this isn't your last visit to the studio oh well, i'm sure i'll be back for um that little twilight saga yeah the next oh, awesome that is, yeah. the I'll next super girly movie that we'll uh, need a I, female I, you perspective know what? We'll, on we'll discuss it at a later time okay <laughs> and uh, we're going to podcast this and other episodes of the show you can find those on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com we also podcast on uh, or we'll post the podcast on twitter and facebook you can catch my and Corey's columns in tusk magazine found in every friday edition of the tuscaloosa news be sure to tune in next time again when we uh begin our journey into the films that we haven't seen on the AFI Top 100 list. And again, we will start with The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Should be fun. And for Corey Kraft and my wife, Tess Flanagan, I'm Ben Flanagan. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going home now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it. But I'm going home right now.